Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Luke chapter 22. We'll pick up where we left off. I, how long is this chapter? How many verses? 46. We will not get through 47. We will not get through 71 verses today. So we could, but we'd be here till four. Um, Jesus is teaching in the courtyard. It's Passover week. Um, he's been teaching there repeatedly. It's in, the verb from the, la, the last cha- chapters is that it's ongoing. He goes in every day, sits in the courtyard. There's some merchants nearby that bother his teaching. He scurries them off. Um, chapter 21 covered his prophetic description of the end of the age of Gentiles. So for those who like eschatology, that was last week. Luke has covered the core teachings of Jesus. At this point in Luke, we're moving towards this crucifixion thing, which Steph always loves when we get to this part of the gospel. Um, the, the core teachings of Jesus have already been told, and he's going to consummate those in a new covenant today. That's where we're at. So verse 1. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Um, huh. I, I can't go much further than that because we have two major terms. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the term Passover. Passover is the older term. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a, a meal that a family shares together in Passover. And I'll make that point. The Passover is not celebrated in the synagogues. It's celebrated in a family, and that becomes relevant with Jesus' new covenant. This is something that Jews go to synagogue, but for Passover, they come together as a family. It's very personal. It's very intimate, and it's not just biological family. It's anybody in the household that's part of that family. And everyone comes to Jerusalem for the big family event. In fact, in the first century, millions are coming into Jerusalem. The crowds are thick. The lines are long. If you want to get a slushy, you're going to wait for a bit. So they crowd into Galilee. This is exciting. It's fun. The kids are running all over the place. And then you get to unleavened bread. The whole point of unleavened bread is you play games with your kids. You tell your kids, we cannot have any leaven in the house. So you hide leaven all over the place. And your kids have to go find it. And it becomes kind of a hide-and-seek game that gets played. It's Again, this is an exciting kind of time. And the idea of leaven is that it's an image of sin. And every sin that gets, so they pick up the, the couch cushions and they pull the crumbs out because that's leaven. So it's, it's more than just a spring cleaning. It is just this image of we can't have anything in our house that would, that would put a, come between us and God. And then you get Passover. That represents, I think this is a reminder for most of us, but Passover is a reminder for them too. The reminder was the last plague in Egypt. Every firstborn child got taken by God. And for any family to avoid the curse of death, all they had to do was take Fluffy the lamb, have it come into their house and live with them for three days, until they, long enough for the kids to get attached to this sweet beast. And then after three and a half days, they would give that lamb to God and they would sacrifice it. Because it was, and the whole idea was that it was painful. There, there is pain in death. It's not good. It's a curse. And they would mark their household by taking the blood of the lamb and putting it over their doorpost. And when the angel of death came through Egypt that night, any home that had the blood of the lamb on it, death just passed it by. Didn't even stop there. And so the next day, Egypt is mourning firstborn sons all over the country, but not the Jews. Or anybody that put blood over their doorpost. So there was a mixed multitude, Exodus says, that were part of that group that actually believed that God was going to do the next. I mean, he turned the Nile into blood, so it wasn't a big leap of faith. But they believed when Moses said the firstborns are going to die that it's going to happen. So death passed over anyone who believed God and believed what he said. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. An interesting contrast because he just said that last chapter. But now he's saying it in context of Passover. It doesn't take a huge leap to see what Luke is setting up here. They don't fear God. They're not even curious about Jesus. And all the chief priests and scribes can do on this very holy night is worry about how to kill somebody that threatens them. Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas. So it's not just the world 
it's also Satan, a spiritual adversary that gets involved in this night. Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, means he comes from the town of Cariot, who is numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and he conferred with the chief priests and captains how they might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So Luke involves Satan here, uh, yet Judas has to entertain this nudge. Satan can't make Judas do anything. He's one of the twelve, as pointed out. But he, verse 4, makes his way. It's Judas that decides to go do this, but Luke says that there's a spiritual force that's nudging him to do it. So there's no word as to motive or why. I kind of like that. Luke's just painting Judas as evil. He's influenced by evil. The instinct, the conversation, the act, playing along with Satan's nudges, all of it. So, so Judas Iscariot from a southern town makes him the only disciple that's outside of Galilee, yet he's the one they all kind of look up to. They gave him the treasury purse. You know, and I don't know about you, but if I'm with a group of people and somebody's holding all the money for the group, that person is trusted. And I don't know if they trust him because he's from a different place or he has a different accent, um, but he goes his way, and, he, and, and, and in Matthew it's very clear he goes his way for, for greed. He wants the money out of it. Luke leaves that a lot more wide open. And in verse 6, he promised and sought opportunity to betray him, Jesus, to the, in, the, in the absence of the multitude. The motive there is not greed. The motive there is to do something very evil, but to do it where you're not going to be threatened or you won't lose reputation, to do it in the absence of the crowds. And they were glad, verse 5. The, the idea of this is, this is, to be glad about this idea of killing somebody is so evil. All they want to do is shut somebody up that they don't agree with. And the evil that is part of that is an evil that's in every age of human history. The desire of some people to quiet other people because they don't like what they hear. And again, the, to do this in the absence of the multitude, and I've said this before, evil loves the dark. It loves those secret places. It loves to do things where it can't be seen because then it can breed. Verse 7, then, they came to, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John and said, go, go, go and prepare the Passover for us that we might eat. This is important that we understand this. When we say the new day, we think of midnight. Middle of the night, we're usually sleeping during that time. Um, that is not the case with Jewish people. The day starts when the sun sets. So you usually eat supper after sunset. So when it says the day of unleavened bread came, the idea is that for most people, that's starting at about 5, 6 p.m. at night, and they're going to prepare everything and get it ready for the next day. It's kind of like putting your turkey in the oven and then letting it go overnight. Jesus, however, is going to want to eat that meal on that night of. So they're actually, you could say, eating the meal on the same day of Passover, but they're eating the meal together well before most people would be doing their Passover meal. So this is then... That's why we don't call this the last Passover. We call it the last supper because it's, they're, they're not doing it like traditional Passover is done. Um, we can also note that there's different pieces to Passover. We're going to go over that today. Not one of the four Gospels mentions a lamb being involved in this meal. And the lamb is the main course of the Passover dinner. Yet it's not there. And, and Luke, I think, sets up that reason better than anybody else. And we should be asking, as they're going to prepare the Passover, and they call it the Passover in verse 7, why is there not a lamb being prepared? And the idea of that is because Jesus is the lamb, and he becomes the lamb of God. They don't need an actual lamb. They're going to get the real thing. Verse 9, so they said to them, where do you want us to prepare? It's a good question. Where are we going to eat? They're not assuming that Mary and Lazarus out in Bethany, which is where they have been staying, they're not assuming that they're going to host. And that's an interesting question. Jesus is either aware that he's a target and he's not making it easy for the scribes and Pharisees because now they're moving around more. Otherwise, they would have been eating at, at Mary and Lazarus's house. They would have been easy to find. So I think part of this question is like they're on the run at some level. They know from the last chapter the scribes are trying to kill them. And this is why they need Judas to locate Jesus. Like it all kind of fits. Verse 10. And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. This is creepy behavior if you, unless there's something going on that's spiritual. First of all, men in the first century don't carry water. 
We should just know that women usually get water and they usually get it in the morning, bright and early. So to go into town and find a man carrying water at night when the sun is setting, that's going to stand out like a sore thumb. It won't be hard to find this guy. Because initially I was thinking, well, how, how do you locate that? Um, and then they follow him to the house which he enters. Like they just kind of, I mean, this will be a great scene in The Chosen, I think, at some point. Like, what is this guy thinking? And then you shall say to the master of the house, so it's not necessarily the man carrying the water, but they're going to follow that man to a house, and then they're going to say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Clearly there's prior knowledge here of some sort. We don't know what necessarily the house this is at from Luke. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room, and there make ready. So they went and found it, just as he has said to them, and they prepared the Passover. This reads like Jesus made some arrangements ahead of time, but Luke doesn't tell us what those arrangements are. Or, this is a miracle. The person had a dream that this would happen or some kind of occasion. It's a lot like the donkey situation when he came into the city, where there seems to be things where, where Jesus is orchestrating these few days very carefully. Luke is precise in his words. Uh, he assumes that we know what Passover is. He, he assumes that we know what cedar dinner is. And the words here can be confusing if you don't understand what it means to prepare the Passover. Because this is all set up. So, Passover looks like this. Number one, you do the chametz, the cleaning. And that's the going around the house, sending the kids, trying to find that leaven, getting all the sin out of your house. Two, Sabbath three days ago, so prior to the um, meal that they're having now, they would take in the lamb and bring it into the house. So when he says to prepare the dinner, we don't know that there's a lamb in the house because there's not one mentioned. Number three, then they go shopping. And this is part of the tradition. This is like when we go through the Christmas holidays. We have all these little traditions. Part of Passover was you go shopping for food because you've gotten all the leaven out of your house. By the way, some of the ways, I think it's kind of fun to read how Pharisees and Jews got around their own laws. Like, why would they do this? But what they would do when they got the, a lot of times they'd take the leaven out of the house and they would sell it to a Gentile who would be a holder of those things. So they didn't have to give up all their bread and pastries and things. And then after Passover was over, the Gentile would sell everything back to them for, for a small profit, which is just not really the spirit of this. So they have their sin. They're just going to keep it outside the physical house. Uh, they would go shopping for all the kosher food. There's a lot of ripe fruit involved, so they're doing all this hospitality planning, and part of that is one shopping trip where the head of the household just goes out and gets everything at once. Cedar dinner. By the way, uh, some theory is that's why there would be a man carrying water, is it might be that the women were out doing the shopping and that this was shopping night, so the men had to carry water. Another possibility is that that household didn't have women in it, and so men were carrying the water, which would be a tragedy for a household to... If you don't have women, you don't have hope of a, a larger family to grow out of that household. Cedar dinner is number four. This is the sinless bread. You take three layers of the matzah bread and you put it in a stack. You cook it with no leaven in it whatsoever. It comes, it comes of age. Then it's pierced with little forks or fingers. Why saltine crackers have holes in them is because it's a pierced non-leavened bread. You'd cover that in, and you'd bury it and you'd hide it an image of death or burial. You take that bread and you cover it. And then you take that cedar dinner and you have these very segmented parts of the dinner, which we'll get into. And then you have the fruit of the vine. And again, they would start to tell stories of God at each of these phases. So part of Passover is to remember everything, but there's a lot to remember in Jewish history. But they're going back through everything. So part number five is tell the stories of God, remind each other, they would have songs that they would sing that help, would help the kids learn the stories. Like with Christmas, we just have to learn the nativity story. With Passover, they had to learn all of Jewish history. And they had songs around it. They had ways to teach the kids. They made it memorable. And then they would pass the plate. And this is just beautiful if you think of the imagery here. The plate that they would prepare when you prepare Passover would sit in the middle of the table. If you've been to Trevor's thing, I had to call him to get reminders on this. There's a, an assortment of things on that plate, and they all have a symbolic power to it. The one thing they have is carpus, which is vegetables dipped in salt water. Like why saltines have salt on them? It helps the flavor a little bit. 
And the vegetables dipped in salt water, it was more about the salt water than the vegetables. And the idea was that they were taking in the tears of the Jews while they were imprisoned in slavery. So they would eat the carpus and then they would tell the story. Yeah, we were slaves. And it was, it was tear-jerking kind of stuff. Then two, the zaroa, which is the lamb bone. The lamb bone is mentioned, Exodus 12, 12, the blood will be a sign on the houses where you are. And when I see blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike. Zoroa, the lamb boat, is especially red. If you're a vegetarian, modern Jews can replace the lamb boat with anything that has that blood red image to it, like beets. You can replace the lamb bone with beets, or you can replace the lamb bone um, with yams. I don't know. The idea of this idea, this passing over is that the, the red lamb bone was an image of the blood of the lamb that helped God to skip over or to bypass death. So then you have the baitza, which is a hard-boiled egg. Again, they would dip it in salt water, and that was the tears not for slavery, but tears over losing two temples. They've had two temples destroyed. So by Jesus' time, they've added this egg to the plate. It's a funeral food. It's a mourning food. And in a sense, the, the temple didn't stop death at all. It's the lamb, the blood that stops the death. The temple's just something you mourn over for the Passover. Again, all these images just fit. And then the karoset, which is a paste of mixed fruit that has a reddish-brown tone to it. And the idea is that this is the work and toil of making bricks without straw. So they'd make a paste that would look like brick mortar goop, clay. And the idea is they're eating that and taking into themselves the idea of work and toil and how the Jews have had to work throughout history. It's always been a pain. It's always been a struggle. It's always been striving. And then the bitter herbs, or in the, the Hebrew, a marar. This is part of what these disciples are preparing. The bitter herbs. Again, this, they're an image of servitude, but not just to Egypt, but to the world itself. All of human life is bitter. And this is why Jews get a certain cultural personality. They're teaching this to their kids as they grow up. All of the world is bitter. And everything we take, and they would take the bitter herbs and they would dip it in the clay paste and they would eat it. This is not tasty, so they'd do everything they could do to add flavor without breaking the rules. Exodus 1.14, And they embittered their lives with hard labor, with mortar and bricks, and with all the manner of labor in the field, any labor that they made them do was hard labor. And the Jews remember this every single year. We're a people that work hard. And that work is bitter and it's not fun, but we get up and we do our job because God chose us as a people. And they would teach that to their kids. Have songs about it. The other images here are added in. If you look at today's Passover, they've added in like an orange for LGBTQ stuff if you're in a progressive Lutheran community. But most Jews, and in Jesus' day, that wouldn't have been part of this meal. They would have had those, those elements we just went through. And one other thing, a beverage. Typically, they would have the, and again, they have a word for wine. They don't use it in, in Luke. They use the fruit of the vine, which was how we would say grape juice. Odds are Jesus and his disciples had communion at Passover together with a grape juice, not with a wine. They would have this four times during the meal. So if, you, if you're Jewish, you get a little silver plate and it has four little cups on it that look a lot like our communion cups. Only Jesus gives very particular instructions, as we're going to see, of when they take each of these cups. Luke gives us cues as to which cup they're on. And they each symbolize something. But they're three and a half ounces, communion-sized. And four times during the meal, they will take one of these. So each person has four cups and they each, you know, a shot of grape juice at various points in the meal. And so that beverage uh, obviously also symbolizes blood and the blood of the lamb that goes with it. Here's the, the four different things. Cup number one. And again, we're going to understand verse 14 on if we get these cups. And we'll, have, we'll be able to make sense of it. The first cup is called the Kadush. It means to be consecrated or set apart. And obviously the Jews feel as a people they were set apart. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, Kedush. I will make you separate from the rest of the world. You will be a people that glorify God. I will rescue you from your bondage. Again, Exodus 6, that's cup number two, the deliverance cup. 
So the first cup is consecration. The second cup is deliverance. The deliverance from the plagues, deliverance from history, deliverance, all the stories of deliverance get shared at the meal. And they'll pass it around. Like, what did you guys learn about Passover this year? Tell us what you learned in school about Passover. So the more they can get the kids to tell these stories, the better. Um, and again, back to Exodus 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great judgment. That's cup number three, redemption. Uh, this is called the Afi Komen. The redemption cup is taken with the matzah bread and you take the fruit of the vine and the bread and you take them together. This is cup number three. This is relevant for us as Christians. Sound familiar? And they will take these two things together. The Afi Konan is an image of grace. It's taken with the matzah. The, the, the Afi Konan is the, the third cup. And this idea of redemption or grace is really important. And you have a three-in-one. They stack three things of bread, and they put them together, and they wrap them up. And it's an image of a three-in-one being pure, without sin, pierced, broken while it's in the cloth they'll smash it and break the bread up broken and then it's wrapped it's hidden somewhere in the house for the kids to find so it's buried and then it rises again and once it's risen again everyone partakes of it it's a beautiful image and jesus is taking these images and he's and and again luke assumes we know all of this even as gentiles he assumes people know what jewish passover is i think the enemy's done a great job of hiding what it is then there's a fourth cup Exodus 6, 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And that's the halal, the praise cup. Hallelujah, right? It's all done, it's consummated, it's finished. The praise cup, the restoration cup, they've been looking backwards all week and remembering all week. The praise cup is looking forward. God has a plan no matter how much toil, sweat, and salt water we have to eat at Passover. God has it all laid out for us. And we're going to go forward with it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Passover was not just about looking backwards. It was always about looking forward to the next thing. And this is eaten again with the matzah bread. And it all points to God's work over time. Jesus is going to say in the next few verses, it all points to Jesus. The whole dinner does. So Jesus takes these elements and focuses on the matzah bread, the sinless leaven-free matzah bread and the cup of grace. When the hour had come, we're back in our chapter, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, that's not the word for wine, it's for grape juice. When the hour had come, so verse 14, we're going to pick these verses apart really carefully. Verse 14 says, when the hour had come, that means the day has started. They've made the preparations and it's evening. This is that last supper moment. Um, it makes it clear, Luke has these timestamps. It makes it very clear that this, there's a beginning and a middle and an end to this meal. And this goes along with the four cups. Lucas's focus is on communion, however. He does it in a different order than Matthew does it. That doesn't mean Matthew's wrong and Luke's right. It means that the way people wrote in the first century is Luke wants us to see where communion came from. He's a history writer, and he's writing his history for the Roman people. So he's trying to explain where communion comes from. Uh, Matthew does it in a slightly different order. Jesus is about to take his people and set them apart from the nations. That's cup number one but they don't mention cup number one. They do mention the 12 apostles have been set apart, right? This is who he's eating with. That's an important thing in verse 14 because the, where's the master of the home? Jesus has taken the role of the master of this house, even though he's a guest in someone else's house, but they're not mentioned. He sat down and the 12 apostles with him. It is highly likely there are other people in the room that actually live in this house. They wouldn't have kicked them out for the Passover dinner. Or those people are waiting to eat dinner the following 24 hours supper. Does that make sense? So they're sitting here and they mention very clearly these 12 apostles and Jesus being called apart or set apart. It includes these people. And then he says with fervent desire. And Luke, uh, he spoke of this desire, uh, chapter 944. It's now come 
This was the plan. This has always been the plan. And when he says, I've desired to eat this dinner with you, what he's saying is you're my family because you have Passover with your family. You do it in your household. So for him to eat Passover and for them not to all split up and go back to their homes, which is what they should be doing, the fact that they're eating this meal together, Jesus is announcing that they're a new family. Not a biological one, but one that's been created in the kingdom of God. Before I suffer, he's taught them that already in the book of Luke. The part Jesus is not excited about is this fulfillment of the suffering, that sacrifice he's got to give. And then he says, I'll no longer eat it. Instituting a change. Passover was to be eaten every year. For him to say, I'm not going to eat this anymore. He's ending the Passover tradition. I'm not going to do this whole Passover thing. Until, and he has two different ways of saying that. By the way, he's changing a central tenet of Judaism on his own authority. If you're a scribe or a Pharisee, this would bother you incredibly. If you're Judas sitting there and you don't think this guy's God, that would, he's changing, who's he to change Passover? The other 11 disciples, however, have really don't even question it which tells you after three years, they're utterly convinced Jesus is the Messiah and he has full authority. So he says, I will not eat in verse 16. He says, I will not drink in verse 18. They've arrived and, and they're here and they're today. And then he takes the cup, verse 17. Now this is where people get confused. How do you say, I will not eat, I will not drink. And then in verse 17, he actually takes the cup. What he's doing there is he's saying, he's pointing at those first two cups, saying, I'm not going to drink these anymore. I'm not going to look back at the servitude in Egypt. I'm not going to look at how God brought us out of Egypt. There's going to be something else that gets remembered in the new institution that he's setting up. When he takes cup 17, he took the cup and he gave thanks. It's singling this cup, but he's not singling the plate. In Jewish tradition, the plate has far more symbolic significance than the cup does. The cup's just to wash down the nasty-tasting food. But he starts to point at this cup of grace, the one that gets taken with the bread, and he gives thanks. This is what you do. When it says in verse 17 that he gave thanks, that signals to us that this is cup number three, the cup where you thank God for his grace and for his redemption. It comes after the bitter part of the meal, and there's one more cup left on the table in front of them that they're still looking at. Cup number three, again, it's the redemption cup, the afikomen. It gets taken with the matzah bread, another clue, because he's, pass he's passing around the bread. The grace is usually taken after the main part of the meal. It's not quite to the praise. And saying he won't drink it and not looking backwards takes then 17. He's got that third cup in his hand. The fruit of the vine. The color there is blood. There's a sacrifice that's going to be given. The lamb hasn't been mentioned. Until the kingdom of God comes. Again, he's taught the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, all through the book of Luke. So we should, have, in reading Luke, we know what he's talking about when he says that. And, he's, and, and I think, then the question is, when does the kingdom of God come? That's our question as readers. Where does it come? Is it that day that he's talking about right now? Or is it when Christ returns? And I think it's both, and I'll give you a few reasons for that. He's fulfilled, established, and brought to be the kingdom of God. We've been taught that in the book of Luke. He has enacted it. Remember they asked him, where's the kingdom of God? And he says, it's among you. It's already there. And there's a consummation or fulfillment that still needs to happen. And then Jesus has gained authority over this domain, and he calls it the kingdom of God or the dominion. It's not a nation state. It's a dominion, a field of authority under which one person has authority to reign and have dominion in that authority. So where's the kingdom of God? It's amongst the people that choose to give authority to Jesus Christ. And who is the kingdom of God? At this point, the fact that they're eating Passover together, it's the family of Jesus, the people that volunteer to serve and be part of his family. This meal then is a fulfillment it's a particular thing that he's doing. He's orchestrated it, he's planned it, and he's desired to have this because it's part of what they're doing. Don't confuse the word basilla with royal earthly kingship or power. It's not the same word. Basilia is the same power a father has over their children. Same power that a bond servant gives to a, a master. He's about to claim authority over a very large household when he does this. And he's been preaching the kingdom since chapter 8. 
He's come near the kingdom in chapter 10. They've come upon the kingdom in chapter 11. People start to press into it in chapter 17. And then they choose to enter it on faith in chapter 18. That's the kingdom. Luke's been building to this point. The kingdom is one with Jesus in authority. Also, the kingdom shows up in Revelations 19.9. Revelation, just one revelation. Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be a meal with a lamb. But that lamb is very different in Revelation, and part of that is what Jesus taught to John. There's another inauguration that's coming. There is a kingdom of heaven that exists, but there's another feast that's coming in that kingdom when Jesus returns. So also, this is the last part of the kingdom coming. Arriving, fulfilling, verse 16, coming, verse 18. It seems like Jesus is talking out of two sides of his mouth. How can the kingdom already be there, yet the kingdom is still coming? And as in retrospect, this is really easy for us. Well, that's because Jesus is coming again. Jesus has established authority, but he's going to wait for people to come to the wedding feast. He's waiting for all of humanity to recognize and come under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And it's in grace and in patience that he's doing that. In fact, it's the third cup. It's the grace that is him waiting for people to get saved. Meaning death is going to pass over us just like the Israelites were covered by the blood of the Lamb at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that sacrifice is going to be something that covers all of Jesus' family. Symbolically, again, if you're a Jew, this would get you really upset. He is the bread. He is the blood. And people get nuts about this. You have all sorts of religious theory around transubstantiation and stuff like No right-minded Jew thought that the bitter herbs were actual tears. That, that the veggies were getting dipped in. The, the Passover was always a symbolic enterprise, and Jesus is simply reassigning the symbols here. He's not saying that he's put his own blood in the grape juice. It's just not what's going on. But it's weird how the Christian church gets into those kinds of things. But they, he is the bread, he is the blood. They take it, he is it, because he gives it. And on the third cup, which is typically taken with the bread, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Jesus changes that. And he, and he says this, verse 19. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. So he crushed it inside of that cloth. And then he gave it to them. He starts to distribute it. And he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He just transformed Passover right there. They're not going to remember Egypt anymore. They're going to remember Jesus. Jesus becomes the pivoting point of history, not the escape from Egypt. This, again, in likely convinced Judas he's doing the right thing. But for everybody else, this is, this is one of the, verse 19 is one of the marked hinges in all of human history. He establishes Christianity with that sentence. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Applying new symbols to the meal, fulfilling the symbolic power of the matzah bread, broken, pierced, pure without sin, hidden, and then revealed. Nothing wrong for a Messianic Jew to do the entire Passover, by the way. Jews still do the entire Passover, but the meaning of the third cup for a Messianic Jew should be very different. That's the grace of God. And it's not the grace of God getting them out of Egypt. It's the grace of God in the form of Jesus Christ, which really gets them out of not just earthly trials, but human, but all of spiritual sin. It's the escape plan. And he says it's given for you. At this point, they know Jesus is a target. Frankly, Jesus could just go on the run right now. Like if he was in Mission Impossible, he would just take off and leave Jerusalem. The fact that he sticks around says that he's giving this as a gift. He knows he's going to get killed. They know he's going to get killed. It's probably why they're in somebody else's house. But they stay here and they wait for Judas to do his evil because the gift is perfectly stated. It's given. Jesus is giving himself knowingly. What greater love does a man have than to lay down his life for his friends? So this meal takes on a tone. He says, do it in remembrance of me. And we might not want to remember the cross, it might be uncomfortable for us to remember the cross. The cross is certainly not politically correct. But the breaking of Jesus' body on that cross 
Jesus asks us to remember what he went through. He asks us to remember that he went through that for us. He is the Lamb of God. And instead of remembering Egypt or the bitter waters of Mara or the wilderness wanderings, we remember what Jesus went through, which is far worse on our behalf. So going forward, this communion of family is going to remember Jesus. Likewise, verse 20. Likewise in that he's changing the meaning of this cup too. He also took the cup after supper. Which cup is that? This is cup number four. Trevor argues it's still cup number three. So Trevor, if you're listening, I, I heard that part too. Took the cup after supper. I think the word after, Luke is in, has, throughout the book of Luke, he's been precision with his words. And so when it says after supper, I think he's taking the fourth cup. And he's, and, and he's doing that. Trevor says it's the third cup because verse 19, it's with the bread. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which I shed for you. Either way, praise the Lord or thank you for his grace. So after supper, this meaning gets changed. He says and with the cup, it's an, actually a new covenant. Covenants throughout the Old Testament are sealed with blood. Abraham's covenant, Moses' covenant, David's covenant, the judges, all of them sealed with blood, a sacrifice of some sort. So the blood that's going to be there, there's a new covenant. When he says, in my blood, it's that he will provide the blood that seals the covenant. With Abraham, remember, God waited for Abraham to fall asleep because the covenant came from God, not from Abraham. And he wanted to make that. But Jesus is doing the same thing. It's him that provides the sacrifice. With Isaac, Isaac got replaced with a ram because God said to him, I will provide myself a sacrifice um, and you don't need to give your son up. So Jesus does the same thing. This covenant sealed in my blood, which is shed for you, protecting his family, his household, the people he's eating Passover with. And he takes these covenant cups, and now all four of those cups for a Christian become one cup. And when we take communion, we do all of it. We remember God. We remember how he set us apart. We know how he redeemed us. We know the grace that he gave us. And it's also the fourth cup of praise. So we still do little 3.5 milliliter cups or whatever they are but we do one cup instead of four makes it easier too we still take it with the bread and why do we do that because jesus told us to and we take it we actually take it literally i think this is a lot like showing up to church on sundays and keeping the sabbath some of these things god asked us to do why does he ask us to eat bread and water together or wine or, or grape juice together what's the point it, it's a symbol but it's a symbol that's important because god said so and in those little things, if we can be obedient in those little things, God says there's more to be obedient in after that. But start by being obedient in the little things. The Kaddush calls us out of bondance. The deliverance calls us from evil. Grace calls us unto God. Hallel calls our praise out of us. All in one cup. No mistaking what Jesus is doing here. He is changing the covenant of God on his own authority with his own blood He's calling himself God and, and using the authority only a God would have. So the Gnostics just aren't reading Luke. He's our kinsman redeemer and he's our propitiation for sin. He's created a nation, a kingdom that has nothing to do with the kingdoms of this world. And he calls it the kingdom of God. If it is the third cup, then that cup of praise is still sitting there. And you could argue then the fourth cup is the one we're going to have in heaven. So either way, that the imagery fits very well. Verse 21, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. You know, Judas hasn't betrayed him yet. This is kind of a one more chance for Judas. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Some struggle here. I really don't. It is possible to go through the motions of communion. It's simply a symbolic act, and it's a powerful one. But Judas just went through communion with Jesus. So when people say there's magic superpowers that go with communion, but the very first one that happened had Judas partake of it, well, I think we should take communion extremely simply. We take communion with our family. And if you are following Jesus Christ, you're part of the family of God. It's very simple. Um, yet there are people that can be in a church and in a community of believers that are still living in sin and they can go through these symbolic acts and Jesus' word is woe to those people. 
there's a woe that sits with that. Don't pretend that you're part of the family when your heart's in a different place. So they began to question. <laughs> of course they did. They began, but the thing they question is weird. They're not questioning the new covenant. They question who's going to be the person to betray them. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, I'm not going to betray Jesus. It won't be me. It won't be. And they seem to be pointing at everybody. Um, but the fact that they are hide, there's somebody hiding among them just kind of sets them out. And Jesus doesn't tell them who it is. Because if he did, they probably would have stopped him. When you debate who's in sin, you also are debating who's the greatest. Because if you're less than me, then I must be more than you. Does that make sense? So as they start to question in verse 23, that actually does connect to verse 24. There was a dispute among them. This is the dispute. Which of them is considered the greatest? So first they're figuring out who the betrayer is. Now they're trying to figure out who the, who the fancy pants is. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. That's a title that people get for being givers. Not, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, as he who governs, as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I'm among you as the one who serves. He just handed out the bread. He was the servant. But as you are those who have continued with me in my trials. It's an interesting thing. Jesus doesn't take the communion, the first two cups. He actually becomes the servant. Human nature, however, gets concerned with rank. Who's the most important? Who's the biggest person in the room? Benefactors, literally translated good workers. I want the title good worker. I want people to see me and think, man, that's Sean. He's a good worker. He does lots of good things. And he works hard. Jesus gives an alternative to that kind of selfish perspective. To be concerned with serving. I want to be the one that serves as many people as I possibly can. I'm not here to get attention. I'm not here to be there. And Jesus says, you don't want the title of benefactor. You want to be somebody who serves, somebody who does good things. Benefactors get the credit. They get the privileges. They get the title. Everybody sees who they are. They get their name on a little plaque by the entryway or carved into a bench somewhere. They're self-glorifying behaviors. Given, giving for the sake of being seen. And in the first century, they would throw entire parties just so the town would know who had money. Because the person who can throw the party has the money. But to be as the younger, the younger people usually were the servants. They'd have the kids bring out the food so the adults could sit at the table. I like the idea of putting the kids to work. But Yet I'm among you as one who serves, as the one who serves. And to put that participle in there is interesting. Jesus is saying he's the uh, actually, the word there is diacono, or what we would say deacon. He's the deacon. <laughs> to serve is to add value to somebody else's life, to give. Oh, to get to heaven and have more than just you saying how valuable you are. Oh, to get to heaven and say, yeah, that person, they blessed my life. They were incredible. And Jesus is saying that's the kind of treasure we got to add up a few chapters ago. To be a minister, literally the word means servant, one who works for other people. So if Jesus is the singular servant, the waiter, the one who serves, the deacon, what are we supposed to be? If we're less than our teacher, we should be even greater as a servant. So they continued with me, as he says. They've now see how Jesus serves, how he's helped, how he's encouraged. They've been with him for three years. We've read all of this in, in 21 chapters of Luke. We've seen what kind of guy Jesus is. And Jesus waits to the very last meal and he still sees his disciples worrying about who's in charge. And now I bestow on you a kingdom. I, I, thinking through the argument that's happening, he's trying to show them a new government and they're bickering over who gets to be in charge. How devastating this had to be for our Lord to see a bunch of humans bickering and arguing when he's changing the history of the world and they don't even understand what's happening. And in verse 29, he really just, and I bestow on you a kingdom. I'm giving you a kingdom. And you're worried about who's greatest. God's establishing a new dominion, a new authority that's set apart for his own. And I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Look, you guys, you're all going to be great. These are the 12 apostles. They're going to get their name on the foundation of the new Jerusalem. That We will know them. We're here reading about them right now. They're going to be great in the kingdom. And Jesus is just like, you guys are going to be fine. But you're in my table. This is my kingdom. It's my authority. Jesus predicts what's going to happen next. I think when the bickering's happening, probably Peter's the loudest about who's the greatest. Because Jesus singles him out in verse 31, and he doesn't use his new nickname for him, Peter, which means the rock. He uses the old name, Simon. This is the old, the old Peter. And the other thing is in verse 31, it starts with the word and. Do you see that? There's a conjunctive. The, the argument leads directly into this discussion of Satan betraying. Satan, you're trying to figure out who the betrayer is, but you're going to leave me by tomorrow morning. And he, probably he could have gone through each of the disciples and talked about how they were going to bail, but Peter, um, wanting to be the best, be the, is the one that gets singled out and get, gets written in the Bible for us to read about. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. It's never good when Jesus says your names twice. We know that rule. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. When you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he says, uh, notice how he just slides in there, when you return to me, that implies that he's going to leave. It's almost like he's hinting that Peter might be the betrayer of the group. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Verse 33 makes it very clear that earlier in the Gospels when Jesus talked about his death, they fully understood that teaching. It was not something they invented afterwards. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So when he says the rooster shall not crow, remember they're eating dinner, the, the beginning of Passover, which means morning is coming. There's a lot that's going to happen this night. But that also means that Jesus is crucified when all of the lambs of Israel are getting killed in the temple courtyards the next when the sun comes up because when the sun comes up and that rooster crows there is a line of people with lambs getting ready to slaughter them for the passover meals then they take that meat home and then the end of passover they would eat that meal with their family so because jesus ate early this rooster crowing moment is going to be a lot of traffic in the city when you've returned to me you know you will deny me. Jesus basically walking him through these prophetic images of what's going to happen. Following Jesus is going to get to be a really tough thing to do. One's going to betray Jesus. The rest are going to leave Jesus. So Jesus sees a spiritual war. Again, he introduces Satan into the conversation again. Satan asking to sift Peter. That's quite an image. Satan can't do anything unless Jesus allows Satan to do it. So there's a spiritual issue here, power that goes to it. Um, at one point, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, when Peter's trying to convince him to not do this. Um, the sequence here is, I will be betrayed. There's a dispute. Maybe Peter's saying it's going to be Matthew, the tax collector. And then Jesus says, Peter, Satan wants you. But I stepped in. In other words, you were going to be the one to betray me, but I said no. An act of service, Jesus points out, is this intercessory prayer. Prayer has power to it. Things change when things get prayed for. Satan can have no allowance here outside of the permission of the dominion of the kingdom of God, which Jesus gives to his followers. So Peter has trust that Jesus will provide the will and the spirit, and Jesus prays for this, that your faith should not fail. That idea that G Peter believes and he's professing his beliefs but it's going to get tested. We falter as Christians, but we don't fail at the end of it. We can fall backwards, but we can get up again the next day and go forwards. And the assumption of that in Jesus' prayer, I think it's wonderful. If we fail to follow Jesus, we get up and we start again. When he returns, strengthen your brethren. The mission doesn't change. So when we backslide, when we screw up, when we take a time off, Get back up the next day and start following Jesus again. Dig right back in. Pick up the same mission God gave you before you fell away. And then he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. That's not humility. Peter still has this pride thing. He's anticipating spiritual ability on his own strength. I'm ready to do it. 
and I got to tell you, Christians do this all the time. If only I try hard enough and I think it hard enough and I will it hard enough, I can serve the Lord. And the answer is you can't do that. You come as a humble servant. What Jesus needs is a servant, not someone who's going to do it on their own strength. So Peter knows his current will and his current heart. What he knows when he says that is his own feelings. But his feelings are not the truth. The feelings are deceiving him. He feels like he'll stick with Jesus to the end, but the reality is that's not going to happen, and Jesus sees through that. Our feelings are not the way to walk through our faith. We walk through our faith very differently. I'll give you an example of this. I want to diet and exercise more so I can be in ripped shape, but I, in truth, fail to do that on a very regular basis. Coca-Cola has a lot to do with that problem. Peter's going to see that it's easier to be bold with your mouth than it is to walk with your feet. And he's going to, he thinks he's as bold and he'll, he'll spout it off to Caesar, but it's going to be the mocking soldiers and a little girl that get him to fail. At the end of the day, he's too worried about what people think about him to serve the Lord. And Jesus says, I tell you, again, on his own authority, Jesus says, that's not going to happen, Peter. I don't know if this would be devastating to Peter or if Peter would just be arguing with Jesus in his head here. I have a hard time getting inside Peter's head on this moment. But it's good because Peter has shown that without Christ, he'll fail. This is like training. First uh, John 1, 3, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, including a servant's heart. Lord, I want to be more like you. Pray for your heart to change and watch it happen over time. We might want to serve Jesus in glory, but the very first thing we need to do is humble ourselves before our Lord. And if we can't humble ourselves before our Lord, we're really not good for kingdom work in any way, shape, or form. Luke only uses the Peter situation to set up the teaching. And this is, we'll end on this little section here today. And he said to them, when I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no. Remember back when he sent them out in twos? Don't take anything with you, he said. Why, why did he do that? This is back in Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, they actually came back joyful. Remember when I sent you out with nothing and you came back with joy? And, I, and again, he's doing this in the face of Peter. Don't try to be the greatest, Peter. Don't try to be the most talented. Don't be the one with a plan. Don't try to be in charge. You don't need anything. All you need to do is go announce to the people you run into that Jesus is coming back. Do that. You don't need money. You don't need the ability to carry things. You don't need fancy shoes. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember, you went out without any of that stuff, and you did the job. So why do you think you need more than that to do the job? And they find Jesus provides everything they need, and then he uses the word, but now. So they say nothing, verse 36. Then he said to them, but now, he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. If you're, now you're going to go do the same thing you did before, but only this time you get to actually take a wallet with you, <laughs> right? You can go out and go do your missionary work and you can go out two by two and nothing's changed. Only that rule of taking nothing was to teach you that I provide everything. This time you can do some common sense. The sword there, by the way, is not an argument to go kill people. The sword was a common tool that got brought with any traveler. If you were going to be out on the roads of Palestine, there were bad guys on those roads. So you didn't go traveling without your weapon at hand. The other purpose of a sword was to actually kill and eat while you were on the road. It was a provision tool, a knife, a very large knife. And to sell a garment and buy one, it's like you, basically in verse 36, he's saying you can go out and do the same mission that you did before, and you don't have to worry about who's greatest. Worry about who's going to go out and tell the gospel. In other words, keep doing what you're doing. Keep serving. Verse 37, that'll be, well, we'll do 37, 38. Again, this had to be tough for Jesus. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. I have to go to the cross. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. This suffering that's going to happen, it will end. This time this, this endurance, this trial they're going to go through. Peter, you betraying me before the crow, that season will be quick. And when it's over, you need to go tell people and share the good news. So Peter, I need you. I'm not going to let Satan have you. So he quotes Isaiah 53, 12. 
This is the verse he's quoting. I'm going to read a little more of that. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Pretty clear what Jesus is talking about. He's the Messiah. He's already taught he'll be killed in chapter 17 and 18. This is just a reminder. But what he adds in this passage is that that him being killed thing will have an end. And he's going to defeat death in verse 38. <laughs> Again, this is a tough verse to end on, but it's a large chapter. And they said, look, Lord, Lord, look, here are two swords. They're so clueless. It's comical. And I don't know if Luke's trying to write that, but the gravity of what Jesus is telling them, we see in retrospect. But all they see is, well, we got two swords. We can go right now. They're so anxious to work for their king that they, they're missing it. And maybe they just don't want to hear it. Maybe they're like Steph and they're like, just skip the crucifixion part. And we, we know that Peter didn't like this idea. The point was to have common sense travel supplies and there's, they're literally looking around the house for travel supplies to get going on it. They can't even conceive what's about to go, spin out of control with Judas. And, and frankly, let's put ourselves in their shoes the evil that's about to happen in the next 24 hours makes absolutely no human sense. Why would you take, think of this, here in Minnesota in the Twin Cities, we got some nutball downtown thinking that he's God. Would we kill that man? Really? Would you crucify him on a cross? So Jesus is down literally teaching in the temple as crowds of people listening to him to teach. The Romans have no reason to kill him right now. They know the scribes and the Pharisees don't like him, but they don't have the authority to kill him. So it's probably beyond, for good reason, it's beyond the disciples. Like, how could he possibly go from having the Passover dinner to being killed in a day? That's impossible. So they're still thinking there's more ministry to do, and they've been doing it for three and a half years. He's been sending them out, and they come back. They can't even imagine the idea of Jesus going to die because none of it makes any sense. It's simply how evil operates. Evil doesn't worry about making sense. It just operates. It does what it does. And then he says to them at the end of verse 38, and then he's, and, and he said to them, it's enough. Literally in the Greek, it's, it, it's more like enough of this, enough of this conversation. So in the Greek, it's a, a conversation ending phrase. Uh, I say this with the kids. Okay, kids, you're done arguing. Not anymore. They're adults. But when they were young, Kids, enough. You're done. End of conversation. Um, so Jesus says that with his arguing kids that he's got around him. Let's be done with the confusion. You know, and I think of it as the game is afoot. Now it's time to done with the discussion. It's time to move on into what needs to be done, which is where the rest of the chapter heads. All will be clear later. He doesn't need to make it clear to Peter right now. He can make it clear to Peter in about three and a half days. And that's what, exactly what Jesus will do. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we love your word even when it's tough conversations. And Lord, we hate to think about your crucifixion and your betrayal and the evil that just reigned on earth for a day. And Lord, we, we hate to think of what they did to you and why they did it to you. And Lord, may our hearts be pursuing you, but may we have humble hearts in that too. May we never presume that we're somehow better than the disciples or beyond the disciples, Lord, that we too would have, it would have just been beyond our imagination what was about to happen. 